Um, so with that, we will start off, and today we're going to jump into 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 13 through 25. That would be 13 to the end of the chapter. Um, I'm going to read the, um, I'm not sure which translation I ultimately settled on here. I got two with me right now, but I have a translation, so just uh, please follow along in whatever translation you have. Um, And I'm just going to go ahead and start reading. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deed, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold, silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the good news that was preached to you. Amen. All right. So right off, this section starts off with a therefore. And anytime there's a therefore, you have to ask, where from? So what has Peter talked about? Last week, the big emphasis that Peter was making is we have this living hope. When we and Joel and I were working on this series, we called it hope. You know, And this, that's what it is. We have a living hope. And this living hope is completely dependent on Jesus. Nothing to do with us. We saw last week Peter identifies himself as the author right out of the bat. Yeah, that Peter. Simon Peter the Apostle. The same Peter who said, you are the Christ, and moments later gets shited by the Lord and gets called Satan. That same Peter. The Peter who, who denied Jesus three times. Okay, That same Peter. The same Peter who Jesus had to go afterwards and say, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And he said, take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. This is the same Peter we're talking about here. And there is no doubt that this is Peter. Some people have tried, and I want to give you guys more background information because I think it's really cool. People have kind of like argued, oh, Peter could not have written this because this is one of the, the best Greek. Remember, these New Testament books are all written in, in Greek. This is like the best Greek in the New Testament. It, it, it's like a runoff between Hebrews and 1 Peter. So people said, there's no way a Galilean fisherman could have written this. Well, the truth is, and we're going to see this later in chapter 5, he had a, if you will, a ghostwriter. He had a guy who wrote it for him, so he probably embellished it, polished it up a bit for him, you know. But basically, Peter is still the author, even though he had a, a scribe. Um, so we know that Peter wrote this. And who, who did he write this to? We, we, we talked last week that even though some of the imagery is very Jewish, 
he talks about exiles, that's something that the Jews really identified with. But he's not really talking to the Jews here. He's talking to Gentiles. The makeup of the people that he's talking to are Gentiles. And last week we gave a sneak preview that in verses 14, but especially 18, it's going to clarify that. Okay, but we'll get we'll get to that in a few. But again, he's talking to Gentile Christians primarily. There, to say there are Jews in the audience. Now, one of the reasons why some people kind of argue and debate it a little bit. Hey, you guys are going to get your money's worth here, people. One of the reasons why people kind of argue and debate this a little bit is like if you go to Acts chapter two, when the day of Pentecost is there, the the places that that were mentioned, Pontus, Cappadocia, Bith- Bithynia, um, Asia, are the same places that were mentioned in Acts. So some people thought, oh, these are the Jews that went back to those places, but Again, once you look at the later verses and what he's talking about, you start realizing it's not Jews. Also, earlier on, when in verse 1, where he's talking about to the chosen exiles, or really a good translation for exiles would be better yet, temporary residents. Okay, For the temporary residents who, were, who are dispersed. So that word dispersion in the Greek is the word diaspora, which means scattered. Now, the reason we know that this is a Gentile audience and not the Jewish one, even though it's using those very common terms, the Jews identify with the idea of being temporary residents because when the Babylonians conquered them, if you guys remember the story of Daniel, where were they living? In Babylon and other parts of the empire. depends on how lucky you were or not. So they were living in Babylon. So they, so they have identified with, with the idea of, of, of the, uh, the temporary strangers. And the diaspora is definitely a Jewish thing. But the thing that kind of was the kicker to this is the fact that he doesn't use the definite article. And we talked about that last week. He doesn't use the, the so it's like, it's the diaspora and the diaspora, so to speak. Now, I will mention this. In, in our English Bibles, I was doing a comparison of, of several different translations. Every translation has something I like and something I don't like. Some translations, they will say the dispersion. And I don't think that that's very accurate. Most commentators will tell you that it doesn't have that definite article. So I'm not a fan of the ones that have the dispersion because it almost makes it seem like the diaspora. You get what I'm saying? So it's not that. He's talking about a, a general scattering of the people. And I think that that makes better sense. And again, the things that help to, confor- to confirm this are, are, are later verses in the, in the, in the book. Okay? So we believe this to be Gentiles that he's talking to. And from what we gathered historically, what we were able to piece together is we know Peter's writing from Rome. And again, he, he, he makes a veiled reference to that at the end of the book, calling it Babylon. And this is very common in the book of Revelation. And we talked about that last week as well. So he's writing from Rome. So the idea is basically, and we know also from Acts, um, I don't have the passage on me, but we talked about it last week, that after a certain point, it says that Peter left Jerusalem and just started doing ministry elsewhere. So the idea is he went, he went out. You know, he, went, he became a missionary. After, after, after his early troubles with the law in, in the Jerusalem area, he decided to head out. And we know from history that Peter was indeed in Rome because he was executed there. So he was doing church in Rome. Now, we know he didn't found the church in Rome because there's no real historical evidence that backs up that he started the Roman Catholic Church. There's just n- no support for it. But we know that he was a part of the church in Rome. Okay? Um, so those are some of the things that we do understand. We know that him and Paul were executed. We know that this book, this letter had to have been written in 64, 65 AD. depends on, on when you want to date it because he was executed around 67 or 68 AD. And again, those numbers can shift a little bit, but bottom line is they all happened before 70 AD, which is the definite destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. So whatever the case is, if you give it a later date of the 67, 68, or you give it an early date of 64, 65, 
But the point is, he was dead before the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And what we do know from history was that Nero was ramping up his, his persecution towards Christians and Jews. And that's what we know from history. So this is even known outside of the Bible. Um, so there's a lot of good historical sources for first century things like this, uh, Josephus being one of them. But, uh, but I digress. So, so we know that he's talking here to these temporary residents. And I wanted to mention that because you guys probably do some studying and probably, hey, you know, this is like the same list of, like in the book of Acts, chapter 2. It was a possibility, and we considered it. But again, once looking at you look at the evidence, it, it didn't make sense that it would be those Jews going that way, especially because he seems to be addressing Gentile needs. Um, so we know that. Um, here's one of the things about Christians during this time. Christians were considered atheists and cannibals. Did you guys know that? They were considered atheists and cannibals. Why were they considered atheists and cannibals? Because to the Roman Empire who had a pantheon of gods, unless you're worshiping all those gods, as far as they're concerned, and, you, and that's the other thing too, the Jews and Christians didn't have an image for their god. You guys don't worship a god. The idea of not having, especially when you consider that every world religion has some sort of symbol or something to represent its deity, and they have more than one, it was kind of a challenge. I mean, you, you, you Christians are atheists. I mean, it sounds kind of funny that when you think about it today. But they were considered atheists. And on top of that, they were considered cannibals. Why do you guys think that the, that the Christians were particularly were considered cannibals? Cannibals as in like human-eating people. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad. Fun. You're, you're on it. You're on it. Go ahead. Give it to me. The Eucharist, exactly. Because of the Eucharist and because of what gets said, this is my flesh. And obviously, from what we learned in, in Corinthians, this is something that was repeated all the time. Now, unlike us, from what I understand, they, they pretty much did it in every gathering. You know, we do it like once a month, but they did it like every gathering. Other places, other churches will do it once a week. They did it on every gathering. It was a different time. It was a different way that the church did things. I mean, they were in, in a, it was a launching of, of something that Jesus Christ has started and there was kind of this, always this tension in the air because they were, you know, they were either persecuted by their own Jews. Remember, Saul of Tarsus was a, was a persecutor of Jews, was he not? Uh, not of Jews, of Christians, was he not? So there was fear already. So they're always doing this on every gathering. They were doing the Eucharist. So guess what? This gets to ears that don't know anything about them. Oh, these guys are cannibals. That's what they were. And that's what they were regarded. They were regarded as cannibals. So... What's going on then here? Peter is trying to encourage Christians because he knows, look, they've been kicked out of Rome. So it's already bad enough that they've been kicked out of Rome. And they had to go to these places in, in, in what is now modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. So they, they had to leave where they were. So they were exiles not only in a, in a physical sense, like, like the, the original the Jews, the nation of Israel was, but they are also, they are also temporary residents in a spiritual sense. In other words, we don't belong here. We don't belong here is, is, is the thing that Peter's letting them out. So he, he's setting out to give them encouragement. And like Israel, and I think this is really cool what, what Peter does here, um, he really likes to draw the parallels between Israel and the church. The church is not the new Israel, just to be clear. Because obviously the promises that God made in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel, he's fulfilling them to the nation of Israel. The church is a separate thing. Thing in God's agenda. Having said that, there is times where you can refer to the church as a new Israel, but understanding that it is not the new Israel. Okay, but we have parallels. 
Um, last week I shared with you guys 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where it says, um, and these things were written so that you would learn. We're talking about the, the Israel's um, wilderness wanderings. He said, these things were written so that you may learn. And he's writing to Gentile Christians in the book of Corinthians. So you see, that idea of, of trying to get the, uh, remember, what is the scripture of the time for these guys? The New Testament is being written, so it's not even a done, done deal yet. Okay? So the New Testament is being written. So what is written, what is existing at this point, is actually a Greek copy of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. So this is the scripture that is primarily used and taught. However, if you look at Paul's writings later, there are certain books that were already being written. For instance, he cites a passage of Luke. So he's starting to cite passages. Peter later is going to cite Paul. So the scriptures are being formed, but we still know that John isn't written because John was written towards the end of the, the first century. So there's a lot of books yet to be written in, in, in the New Testament. Jude wasn't written at this point. It would be probably written shortly after this because Jude and, first, and Second Peter have a lot of similarities. But at this point, the New Testament is still not the thing that they're, it's like it's not widely circulated yet. It's circulating, but it's not widely circulated. Very few letters of the church are existing at this point, and they're, they're yet to spread around. You know, they haven't made as many copies yet. They haven't gone all around. So that's what, what a lot of what's going on here. So a lot of what is existing at this point is the Old Testament. So you have, the Old Testament is a great thing to work with. So they're working with the Old Testament scriptures. And, of course, you want the Christians to, to learn from Israel. And that's what Peter does here, and I think he does a, a real masterful job of doing this. So he tells us that we have this living hope. The reason for this living hope, again, Jesus' death and resurrection, the atonement, the new covenant, this was all covered in those early verses that we read last week. Um, we also saw that God foreknew us. In other words, God knew beforehand. He made the call beforehand for us to be saved. And anytime the word foreknown is used, or predestined, however, whatever translation you have, that God knew beforehand. The idea is that God chose you before you did right or wrong. Uh, Romans chapter 9, I believe, it, makes that comparison where, where he talks about Esau and Jacob. If you guys remember, Esau and Jacob are the twin sons of Isaac. And it says that I chose Jacob. And the idea behind it, as Paul was explaining it later, is that I chose Jacob while he was in the womb, so that people could see this. So it had nothing to do with, with the screw-ups that they did later when they grew up. I did it kind of pre. Well, but God knows beforehand how they're going to choose. True. But the thing is, God made the call. And as we talked about last week, it makes it is a much more hopeful disposition to trust that God made that choice than we did. Left to our own devices, we would never choose God. And that we, we, we really believe that it is a special work of God and the Holy Spirit to bring us to him. And it's because he chose us. Just like he chose the nation of Israel, he also chose the church. I'm going to use the uh, same marathon illustration to communicate several points throughout tonight's lesson. But um, one of the things is, uh, as we saw last week, when it talks about the prophets who were prophesying the Messiah, they didn't understand everything they were talking about. And they would be talking with God. That's what Peter kind of tells us. They would be talking with God. But what about this? So they knew that that. You know, they weren't going to see the Messiah. but they So basically, the, the Messiah prophecies were to our benefit. Okay? So the way I'm going to compare it is that, you know, I've, I've done marathons. I'm not a great runner, mind you, but I've done marathons. I, I, I got by. I've done four. Okay? Point is not to be Mick Braggart. The point is this. Here's the thing. 
when you're at mile 26, is it over? Is the marathon over at mile 26? Close, but no cigar. You see, you're never going to get a medal when you're at mile 26. But when you're at mile 26, let me tell you, you're already singing We Are the Champions in your head, or out loud in my case. You know, you're already singing it. Because once you're at mile 26, point one, point two, whoo-hoo, then I get the medal. Then I get the official time. But the idea is when the Messiah came, that is mile 26. In other words, people, we're almost at the end of the marathon. We're almost at the end of the marathon. Jesus' first coming is mile 26. He hit that marker already. So I don't know where, where, where we're at right now in, in, in that, that timeline. If we're on 26.1, if we pass it yet. All I know is that we're past mile 26 because that's what Jesus And 26.2 is Jesus' return. When we get the new, improved resurrection bodies with him, Okay, we're, we're going to be the 2.0 versions of all of us. That's what's going to happen. We're going to be the 2.0 version of, of who we are right now. We're going to be a continuation, but a, a, the 2.0 version. I'm like, wow. And that's going to be the thing. So, yeah, so he's talking about this living hope because why? And here's one of the things that Peter does, too. He tells you right off the top, there is going to be suffering in the equation. There's exiles. Think about it. That, that's, that's a persecution, isn't it? To be kicked out of your, your land. Imagine if, if and somebody came to your house and dragged you out of your house at night. Does that sound like, wouldn't that not be a persecution of sorts? These people were kicked out of Rome. They're forced to live in other places. Okay, So we know that suffering is a part of the... And here's the thing. Jesus himself is proof of this. Okay, suffering has always been a part of the equation. It has always been a part of God's design. It's never a question of if there is suffering. It's, it's a question really of when and how much. It's a question of the duration and the intensity. Uh, regarding this suffering, we're talking about unjust suffering, like Job's. We're talking about a suffering that if I stole something and I get arrested, I deserve that. I deserve the pain that comes with it. If I hit somebody else's kid... And it turns out that their, their dad is a bodybuilder. I deserve the pain that comes after that. You see? No, we're talking about something that we, we don't deserve here. This isn't about something that we deserve. These are people that are just being Christians, so they're suffering for being Christians. No other reason. Okay? And what Peter's telling us, again, living hope, keep your eye on the prize. Stay focused. And when I think about this, I'm thinking of Matthew 14, uh, 28 through 30, where, where Peter knows the importance of keeping your eye on the prize. I'm walking on water. I know I had to keep my eyes on Jesus. When I took my eyes off of Jesus, that's when the boom, 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 sinking happened. See, so he knows a little something about focus. Okay? Focus is very important. The prize. What is the prize? Glad you guys asked. The prize is intimacy with God and heaven itself. Uh, our incentive, the inheritance. It's the completion of our salvation. Remember, that's what we talked about last week. The completion of our salvation to bring glory to Jesus. It's not about our glory, it's about Jesus' glory. The role of suffering, therefore, is to develop our faithfulness. I'm going to repeat that. The role of suffering is to develop our faithfulness. Faithfulness. Not silver, gold, earthly status stuff. No. In, in, In eternity... There, there is a different currency, okay? It's faithfulness. Faithfulness is the currency in heaven. 
Okay? Well done, my good and what? Faithful servant. You see, that is the currency of heaven. It's not how much gold. It's like, you know, somebody once said, you know, the golden rule, whoever, whoever makes the most gold makes the rules. Ha, ha, ha. No, it's not what he's talking about. Gold and silver, they don't, look, what happens with gold when we get to new, new, new heaven, new earth? Gold is what the streets are paved of. That, guess what that means? That means that we trample over gold. In other words, gold is worth nothing if we're walking on it. See, gold is not what it's all cracked up to be. What you want is faithfulness. Okay? In this living hope, this is why, those are the two big things we want to see. The, God's glory and our completed salvation. Again, the 2.0 version of each and every one of us here. Okay? Back to the marathon. Jesus' first coming and crucifixion. That is the mile 26. Or, or 26, you know, that point, point where, where Jesus announces his ministry and, and is crucified. That's all part of that mile 26 stretch. Okay? It's basically done, but not yet. There's that tension of, you know, the, the kingdom of heaven is here and yet to come. There's something that the book of Mark, which happens to be very influenced by Peter, by the way, because Mark was a disciple of Peter's. So that tension is there. And you kind of, you know, I like doing this because you kind of see these connections and it's like it all makes better sense. So we're still waiting for that second coming, the crossing of the finish line. Okay, so remember, we don't get the medal until we cross 26.2, the spiritual 26.2. That's Jesus' second coming, okay? Then we get the prize, okay? So living hope. I think this is a great way to start off a letter, don't you? I think so. So that was the therefore, and I needed to do that therefore because part of it was it, it's good to recap some of that stuff. And again, we need to know where these therefores are coming from. So it says preparing your minds or our minds for action. The word picture here is, if you, uh, I don't know if some of you guys might have a translation that says gird up your loins. Does anybody have that in your translation? Some translations have it. That's what it literally says, to gird up your loins. The idea of girding up your loins is basically you're wearing these long robe dresses that even men wore back then, and the idea to get ready for action is in order for me to run, what do I have to do? I have to lift it, tie it up around me so I can run. That's the idea here. So when he's telling us to, to get our minds ready for action, that's what he's telling us. That's the word picture that he's painting, to get ready to run, you know, to, re, to do something here. Okay? In other words, and also when you gird up your loins, the idea is you don't want anything dragging you down. Because the thing is, if you run with, with this man dress it's dragging you it's drag so you got to lift it up tie it up so it doesn't drag okay being sober-minded the idea here is to don't be mentally nor morally impaired when you're drunk you're you're mentally and morally impaired he's saying to be sober-minded the opposite of being drunk don't be mentally and morally impaired okay and it goes on to say set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of jesus christ the reasons for hope that, that Peter spells out. Grace. It's an undeserved, it's unmerited. And it depends completely on God choosing us. And we saw this earlier in verse 1. Right away, Peter makes that clear. This is completely on God, our salvation. Undeserved, his grace, his selection of us, his choosing us. Jesus paid with his blood. We saw that early on as well, that he paid for his blood. The atonement of atonements. Last week we talked about all the atonement sacrifices of the Old Testament, and we compared it with a kid with a credit card. He gets the bill that first month and realizes he can't afford to pay it back because he's going to school and he doesn't really have a full-time job to pay it back with. So what does he do? He doesn't want to have bad credit. That's what the atonement system is. He pays the minimum. And month to month he's just paying the minimum. This is what the Old Testament sacrifice system was. It was a kind of a placeholder 
so that you were not called, you know, called into, you know, to, by the collections to like, hey, uh, you know, you're going to get thrown into jail for not paying anything. So it's a minimum payment until Jesus Christ came and he became the atonement of atonements. I'm going to coin that phrase because I don't think it's written anywhere. So I'm going to patent pen it. Okay? So the past atonement offers only paid the minimum on the balance. Once Jesus died and resurrected, hope doesn't get better than that. Okay? And verse, uh, the next, as obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So this is already starting to allude a little bit to the idea that it's the Gentiles. The Jews weren't really ignorant. If you look at Paul's letters, he talks about the Jews... He does a comparison about the Jews and the Gentiles. He says, Jews, we had the law. In other words, we don't have the ignorance. We actually had the, we had the inside track on the truth. We knew the truth. We just didn't respond to it appropriately. That was his charge against the Jews when he was talking in Romans. The Gentiles is like, you guys didn't know, and you guys needed it anyways. You know, in other words, everybody, everybody is under God's wrath because for one reason, if you have the law but you're not doing it, it does you no good. If you don't have the law and you're still not in right with God, you're still in the wrong. So the idea is that, again, we have to, and, and, and the word there used, uh, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. We are God's children. Notice that. It says, as obedient children. So Peter's really big on this whole identity thing. He's really big on this identity. Before identity became a buzzword of the 21st century, Peter was already talking about it here. You are God's children. So as God's children, we have to be like God. This is the nature of a parent and a child relationship is this. The parent protects the child. That's what God does to us. He protects us. He guards us. He looks out for us. And the child's obligation to the parent is what? Obedience. Submission. We obey our parents. He protects us. We obey him. Obedience leads to intimacy with God. And it's ultimately for our benefit. God told Adam and Eve, do not Eat. Well, actually, he told Adam, and Adam told Eve. But the point being is, God told them, do not eat from that tree. And it was for your benefit. I'm going to teach you good and evil the right way. You guys chose to learn it the wrong way. So the problem was, God was teaching them good and evil by in, in that very test. Okay? But they chose to learn it the wrong way. So child ought to resemble their parent. That's another characteristic of a child and a parent. Children resemble their parents. We are God's children, so we ought to look like him. So the passions of a former ignorance, two things. In the immediate sense, this is definitely a thing to the, to the Gentiles. Okay, because they were the ones of the former ignorance. They're the ones that didn't know the law. They're learning this stuff now, but they didn't know before. So when Peter's writing this to them and, 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 and stuff, he, he is telling them, you guys were pagans. Paul does something similar in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, and I'll actually read this one really quick. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Paul writes this. And he's writing to the Gentile Christians who, again, Gentiles being the main thing here. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, past tense. In other words, this list he's given them is stuff that they used to do. In other words, this is your old way of being. 
Jews were really not, even though Jews did some of this stuff, they weren't really known for doing this stuff. You know, their problem, their bigger problems were hypocrisy and, and other things like that. So here he's talking to, to primarily Gentiles who, again, Jews frowned upon homosexuality. It, it's always been a part of their faith and tradition. No, no. The Gentiles, on the other hand, it was a very common practice. Christians and Jews were the minority in the world. Today, we feel like we're like a persecuted minority. Believe me, compared to how it was in Roman times, we're not there yet. It was bad when the early Christians started and throughout most of history up to that point. Okay? So believe you me, you know, we, we ain't seen nothing yet. It was really bad in the time, especially in a place like Corinth. That was really bad. You want to talk about a very liberal city? This is a liberal city right here, the city of Corinth. Okay? And this is what he's talking about. So again, these are things like former ignorance kind of things. Okay? Um, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, most of us probably even have that one memorized. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Okay? Uh, and uh, going back to Romans, do not Romans 12.2, do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Okay? So there's a before and after story for us, okay? So that is. So we know then that in the immediate sense, he's talking to the Gentiles who are pagans. Okay, you don't refer to the Jews as pagans. You refer to the Gentiles as pagans. And the other thing is in the spiritual sense, this is true of everybody's Christian experience. The old nature versus the new nature. Okay? Things of our past, whether you're Jew or, or Gentile or whatever we are. It is true. It is the past. We are all new creations in Christ. Um, but as he who called you is holy, you are to be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. God called us to salvation because he chose us for it. For a purpose in verse 1. So um, let's read what it says in Ephesians 2.10 really quick. It says, For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do good things he planned for us long ago. In other words, in eternity past, God's purpose for us was to do good. He created us to be good. And this is something that he's writing to Christians. Okay, So we were created to do good. It is the purpose Again, with holiness. Um, holy. What does holy mean? Holy means to be set apart. Ways that God is set apart. I'm going to talk about how God is set apart. God is obviously the holiest of holies because he is set apart in many more ways than even we can be set apart. For one thing is, God is the only being who is uncreated. Think about that for a moment. Everything else is created except for God. Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit are the only person who is not created. Everything else is created. The laws of the universe is created. Space and time is created. That's why Genesis begins the way it begins. In the beginning, in other words, the idea is that God is there before time. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, heavens and earth entails everything. That's poetic language for everything. The universe, the cosmos, everything. The laws that govern it, everything. The energy that's behind it. Everything. God is the creator of it all. Um, 
So God is set apart in, in, in those ways. He is a, a being that is completely independent. He's the only being who is completely independent. Every other thing depends on something else for its existence. God is the only one who does not depend on anything for his existence. God is the only being who does not need anything for his existence. You say, but he, he needed communion. No, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are a perfect communion in and of themselves. It, it's a great mystery, Paul would, would explain it as. But we know that it's not God, that God needed company and God was alone. He has the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay? He, does, he needs absolutely nada. Okay? He's three persons in one. Don't overthink it. But bottom line is, he's a very unique person. He's a very unique being. Okay? We're not three in one. You know, I don't have like, you know, Mick one, Mick two, Mick three. There's none, none of that going on here. It's just one Mick. You know, crazy Mick. But that's all there is. Okay? Um... He is, he's, he's, a, he's an amazing being. So we are to be set apart because God, God is. So God is, is set apart. So he's setting an example for us. Um, we are to be set apart from the morality of this world. This world has a different system of morality. One that, frankly, goes against whatever God says. Okay? And again, I remind you of 1 Corinthians 6 that we read earlier in Romans 12, 2. You know, we're supposed to be different than the pattern of this world. It says, we are set apart for obedience to God. So that is the purpose. We have been set apart. God chose us for obedience to be set apart in our context. We need that is where we go towards holiness. Okay? There's a difference between perfection and holiness. And it always gets jumbled up. So again, it's the idea that we're set apart. God will make us perfect in his time. Perfect meaning mature when when we get there. But it, we need to be set apart. Um, verse 17. And if you call him and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each other to each uh, one's deeds conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile again i always like using several translations and this is the one thing on this particular translation i did not like the use of the word if okay um, the thing is that this word that is in the greek for if can be translated as if and it doesn't really destroy the meaning by the way but a better translation is the way that the, um, the NIV has it. Since you have been called God's children. Since you call God your father, I'm sorry. Since is better in this sense. You get what I'm saying? Since makes better sense here. So it's since. Bottom line, it doesn't really contradict anything. It says if you, if, if you call God father. In other words, since you call God father or because you call God father. Since you call God father. In other words, since God is our father. Again, he is our father. What does that make us? Our, once again, the identity thing. We are his children. If he is our father, he is our, we are his children. So it says that God judges us. He judges what we do. Okay, and I want to explain something here because this, could be, this has been a source of a lot of confusion for a lot of people, myself included. Okay, this has been a journey for me and this has been a learning thing for me too. But one of the things that was confusing when you read a passage like this, okay, so I thought Christians were, were kind of spared for, from judgment. I thought, what, what's, what's the deal here? Is this a contradiction? What's going on? Judgment? Wait a minute. I thought I went from life to death. I mean, from death to life. I, in Christ, you know, what, what happened to the whole Romans 8 business? What happens is this. There are two judgments that, 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 that are talked about in the Bible. One of them is called the white throne judgment. This is where God separates basically the sheep and the goat. The good from the bad. The saved from the unsaved. There are two different judgments. And the other one is called the Bema judgment. And this one's only for Christians. Okay, the Bema judgment uh, 
And we read about this in, in 1 Corinthians uh, 3, 10 through 15. Uh, this judges that it's talking about here, where it says that he's judging here, in the Greek, it carries the idea of, of God not looking for something wrong with us or something bad, but he's actually looking for good. In other words, this is kind of like, I'm going to grade your, 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 your craft. I'm going to grade your science project that you're giving me. In other words, this is God's evaluating what we've done for him. So it's not God judging us for good and evil. That we've, we've, been, we've, been, we've been spared from that judgment. This is more where God is now looking at what we did or didn't do. You get what I'm saying? So it's, it's a different judgment. Okay, so one's the white throne judgment. That's where he separates the good from the bad. In other words, the saved from the unsaved. Actually, because we really think about the saved people are actually pretty bad. So the saved from the unsaved. And at the beam of judgment is where he, he evaluates our faithfulness. This is where we get tested for our faithfulness. Okay, and again, in Romans 3, 10 through 15, it talks that some people, gold, silver, and precious stones goes through fire. What happens? It survives. Wood, straw, hay goes through fire. Nothing to show for there's going to be people in heaven that are going to have something to show for. There's going to be people in heaven who won't have anything to show for. It's a reality. Okay? I didn't make this up. I'm not smart enough to come up with something like this. This is God's, God's stuff, not mine. But in a way, there's a comfort in that because, you know, you see some Christians that, that are coasting, being very carnal in the way they live. And then you see Christians who are really trying to be faithful. That's a good encouragement. And I don't see anything wrong with, with God giving us incentives. Um, uh, thank you, God. I could use some. Um, so that's what's going on here. So conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And I think it's really cool. I'm going to start off with that phrase, the time of your exile. What is he saying? He goes, while you're on this side of eternity, you need to remember, again, we are temporary residents. Okay? We, this is not, our, this is not our, our thing. We need to remember, this is a, both the idea that it's temporary, okay, what is temporary? Our stay in this current system of the world, in this 1.0 version of the world. And the other thing that's temporary is our suffering. Our suffering has an expiration date. I don't know about you. I find comfort in that. I had a bad day at work today. My stomach was affected really bad. I experienced, without getting into details, a betrayal. That It was just really bad. I... I literally wanted to cry. I, I don't know how I haven't cried yet. On my drive over here, I wanted to cry when I was with my daughter, but I kind of put on the manly man face so I didn't cry. But I wanted to cry. It was a bad betrayal. Um, the point being is I'm happy to know that our sufferings have an expiration date. Our trials have an expiration date. Okay? It's good to know that there's going to be a day where we don't need to take tests anymore. So to speak, school will be out for the summer, an eternal summer. Okay? Fear. The idea of fear is reverence and respect for God. Uh, in relation to God, fear is not a bad thing. If you really think about it, when you consider that, what I, oh, God, I wish I had it for this. I had it for another lesson where it talks about that God, do not fear man who can only destroy the body, but fear God who can destroy the body and the soul. In other words, God can destroy everything. It is healthy to have a fear of God. And it is good to have a fear of God. In fact, when you look at the Bible, there are basically two types of commands regarding fear. One is, Fear God. The other one is don't fear anything else. Those are the two commands. And so, I don't know. To me, it kind of makes sense. You fear God because he's the only one. Verses 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as 
silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like the lamb of a, like like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The concept of ransom, the few things Jesus paid for our sins. Okay, he had to settle, he had to settle that balance. Um, Jesus paid God, not the devil. And that's another thing, because some people think, well, it's because God owed the devil because of our sin. God doesn't owe anybody anything. He didn't, he didn't pay the devil. It's about God's scales of justice. It's about God's righteous standards. It's not about the devil's. The devil, all the devil did is accuse. All the devil did was, was tempt. But God doesn't owe the devil anything. When he talks about Satan, the idea between God and Satan is this. I don't owe you jack. You're my servant, not the other way around. I don't owe you anything. So this is not Jesus when he paid with his blood. It was not paying Satan for our salvation. He was paying God for our salvation. I make sure because some people do get that a bit uh, mixed up. So God never owes anybody anything and definitely not Satan. God doesn't owe, can't owe anybody anything because if God is indebted to anybody else, it kind of actually cheapens his brand. It lessens his, his godhood in a way. If he owes somebody. Think about it. The Almighty owing somebody? No. Doesn't make sense. He doesn't owe anybody anything. We belong to him and should live like we do. That's what the whole point of us being ransomed is. Uh, we inherited futile ways. Again, like verse 14. This is specifically the Gentiles. The Jews did not inherit. They, the Jews inherited great things. They inherited the law of Moses. They inherited all the promises of God of, of Abraham and all that wonderful stuff. So definitely, here's like, if there was any doubt, let's say 14 still didn't seal the deal for you, 18 is telling you, yeah, I'm talking to you guys. And from what I know, if there's any Jews, it's all good. But I don't think anybody here is Jewish, right? And if there was, great. I love Jews. You know, when I was younger, people thought I was a Jew. So, hey, I love Jews. Okay? Hey, and uh, this is also the other thing. I'm a big comic book fan. The comic book industry is indebted to the Jews. The Jews basically lifted that thing from the ground. I'm a, I'm a big Jew fan. Batman's creator, Jew. Superman's creators, Jew. Spider-Man's creator, Jew. The whole Marvel movie universe, pretty much Jewish. Hey, hey. Steven Spielberg, Jew. Okay, Jurassic Park. Oh, I got it. Right, right. Let's, let's stick with it. Okay, uh, so, so, yeah. So he's talking here to us. and then, So, yeah, this is definitely us he's talking to. So gold and silver, here's again. We talked about this early. They're the currency of, of this, that this world values. In other words, it's got a limited shelf life. Once this world system is over, that stuff ain't worth anything. Okay? The things that, that this world value have no value in eternity. Okay? Again, I, you know, the streets of gold. We're walking on gold. I mean, you walk generally on things that are not really, you know, worth much, you know? That's the idea. As the old hymn goes, um, nothing but the blood of Jesus. You guys remember that one? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. All right? So what does John 1.29 tell us? Okay? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Again, the blood of Jesus is the thing that ransoms us. Uh, the, again, it's the picture of atonement. Hebrews uh, 9.11 through 28. We talked about that last week. And we read 10.4, and it's worthy of reading again. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sins. That stuff just doesn't cut it. Okay? So no, verse 20 is huge. Okay? Jesus foreknown or predestined before the foundation of the world. Okay? I'm going to read something here that I think kind of explains it pretty cool. 
the fall did not take God by surprise. You know, the sin of man didn't take God by surprise. He already knew what he would do in view of it and who would do it. In other words, they already settled who, who was going to do what between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have two good reasons why we, we can come to God. Number one, what Christ did for us. And number two, what God did for Christ for what Christ did for us. In other words, he had this all figured out. Jesus and God, the Father and the Holy Spirit, says we, we, we go ahead with this. This is what's going to end up happening. This is what we're going to do. He's in control of the story. This is what we're going to do. You're going to have to die for their sins because they're going to choose wrong. If we're going to allow this, these guys to be free, free thinking, free everything, this has got to happen. And, they, and, and, and he had, in that sense, Jesus was, was known as a sacrificial and suffering lamb of God. And he's foreknown, okay, knew beforehand. And therefore, he's, he is chosen and elected as that. Now, God the Son is, is eternal. Okay? God the Son is eternal. But when you think about Jesus, he's God the Son. That's his ultimate identity. But Jesus the man is, is a new thing, in a manner of speaking. Jesus the man is only 2,000 years old. Now, who he is as God the Son is infinite. But Jesus the man, you know, if we were to throw a birthday party today, we'd be singing happy birthday 2021 to Jesus. But to, to him as the Son of God, that's infinite. Okay? But he knew, and this is why Jesus is the firstborn of the resurrection. He had to be the first one. Okay? He's the first of a new breed of fully mature sinless humans. Adam and Eve, they may have started off as as, uh, as sinless. They didn't stay that way, but they were definitely not fully mature. They were still growing. That was the thing with them. They weren't perfect. Perfect means that, that, that you're, you, you have matured completely. And Adam and Eve were, were in that sense not perfect. They were sinless, but they were not perfect. And obviously the fact that they chose to sin demonstrates that they Jesus... Is all knowledge. He knows it all. There's nothing that he needed to learn per se. He needed to learn things as a human. But there, in in his son of God identity, he knew it all. This is why it had to be the, the God man who saved us, and no other person could do this. Um, in Romans 8:29, it says, "For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be what." The firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So Jesus is the firstborn of the resurrection. He's the first of this new 2.0. I like you guys are going to hear me saying that throughout the 2.0 version. I'm a big fan of the 2.0 version. Okay, so yeah, Jesus is is, is the firstborn of this. Okay, um, and Colossians 1:18. One second here. What happened here? Oh, here we go. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. Okay? So this is, this is the stuff that, this is part of God's story. This is God's plan. Um, moving, uh, moving on here. He was made manifest in last times. This means that Jesus did things that were mentioned in Isaiah 62, verses 1 and 2. Um, we're going to read um, Luke chapter 4. Uh, I have it here. And we're, if you guys want to make a note of it, verses 16 through 21. So it says, He, Jesus, went to Nazareth, so he was coming back home, where he had been brought up. 
And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, in case anybody questions about Jesus being literate, here is proof that he was, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it, was, where it is written. So he's reading from Isaiah 62 here. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for, for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is big because when we get to that part where it says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, if you go to the Isaiah passage, there's an and, the day of God's wrath. 26. We're still waiting for 26.2. So, part one. The thing is that when you read this as a Jew, and I I try to, you know, you try to empathize with them and read. If I'm reading this, I'm thinking it just all flows as one read. But of course, Jesus is the author of this because he's God. So he knew if there's anybody who's the perfect commentator on how Isaiah should be understood, it wasn't going to be any other rabbi other than Rabbi Yeshua. And Rabbi Yeshua made a point here to stop it there. Because the problem is, if, if the day of God's wrath happened at that time, heaven would be an empty kingdom. He needed to pay for you know, our sins. He hadn't done that yet. He didn't, want, he didn't want it to be an empty kingdom where it's just him. Otherwise, why bother with creation? He went well along with creation because he wanted to have people in there. Wanted, not needed. You see the difference? He wants to have, he chose us for that. So he stopped right there. That's big when I think about it. So he's going to be. This is going to happen in the end times, okay? That's the day that we're talking about, the day of God's wrath. That's the the, the made manifest in the last times. Verse 21 tells us we are believers through Him. Going back to verses one and two of First Peter, because God chose us, and this is cool because Peter does this, and Paul rarely does this, where he throws all three members of the Trinity, because God chose, because the Father chose us. Because the Spirit separates us. That's what it means to sanctify us, separate. That's where you get the same word holy from. The Spirit separates us, and because Jesus paid for us. You know, where it talks about ransoming and the sprinkling of the blood, that is the atonement, the payment. Isn't that awesome? Uh, verse one, also, verse 21 also reminds us of Jesus' death and resurrection, how God glorifies Jesus. And therefore, this secures our faith and our hope, our salvation in him. Uh, verse 63, I mean, not verse 63, my point's next to What is the idea behind the purifying of our souls by obedience and brotherly love? Wait, what do you mean we're purifying? The, 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 the idea of purifying our souls is simply this. Having been saved, purifying is not being saved. Purifying is not salvation itself. Purifying is something that happens once you're saved. Um, what is purifying? And it says purified, and I think it's better understood as purified. Um, it's a cleansing. It's a washing. That's what purification is. It's a cleansing and washing. And the the, the imagery here is you got to think back to John, where where the where Jesus is cleaning his disciples' feet in in John uh, 13 8 through 10. Remember uh, what happens there? You know Jesus starts cleaning his disciples' feet. There, that's a whole story in and of itself. I'm gonna go jump to the to the highlights here. So Jesus starts cleaning his disciples' feet. Okay, and who's who, who's the Who's the, the guy who always has to open his big mouth? Peter. And what does Peter do? 
oh, Lord, you're cleaning our feet? To his credit, he recognized there was something wrong with the picture here because he's the master. How could the master be cleaning our feet? Jesus says, just trust me. Long story short, trust me. And Peter says, oh, no, no. Oh, no. If you're going to clean my feet, you got to clean my head, my the whole thing, the whole shimichanga. And Jesus says, I'm imagining Jesus right now. And I'm in my mind thinking a bad word, and, I'm, and Jesus probably isn't doing that part, but he's like, Peter, the man who is bathed only needs to clean his feet. Think about it. If you're bathed, what happens? I'm walking the streets of Jerusalem. It's dirty. It's dusty. It doesn't matter that I have sandals because they're not Nikes. And even if they were Nikes, sand, dirt, and crap are going to get in there. Okay? Your feet are dirty. You, for the most part, are clean. Maybe not perfectly clean. Maybe you can use a little old spice. But you're, you're basically clean. But especially by their standards back then, you're clean, Peter. Trust me. Okay? So the idea is you don't need a washing. You don't need to be bathed. You don't need to be saved. Salvation is kind of like a washing, the complete washing. We have been washed from our sins. But what happens is as we walk life, our feet pick up dirt. Our feet get muddy. They get dirty. They get sullied. So when we get into a house, I don't really want you entering in more than you need to with those feet. You want to enter my prize room where I got my prize collection of comic books? You're not walking in with those feet. Peter, you need a purification. I sin every day. I need to get my feet cleaned. This is where I think of 1 John 1, 9. You know, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to, to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. The idea isn't about salvation. Even though that verse gets used as a witnessing verse, because the Holy Spirit is powerful enough to do that, but the true context, the true understanding of this is he's writing to Christians. And he's telling you, you as Christians, what happens is you're going to get dirtied. You're going to get sullied. We need to constantly, repentance is not just a one-time deal for the Christian, it's a way. It's not to be saved, it's because you're saved. So the purifying here is the cleansing, it's a washing, it's you know, getting that muck off of our feet. Okay? Because the idea is, I want to go in as deep as Jesus lets me go in. And the less filthy my feet are, the better I have of going constantly in. I also think of Revelation 3.20. You guys remember that one? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man shall hear my voice, I will open the door and will come in. The idea of, of intimacy. I want to come in. I want to hang with you. I want to dine with you. I want to get tight with you. That's what the idea is. It's about tightness with God. It's about tightness with Jesus. Okay? So that that's what we're going for here, you know. Um, this is all about faithfulness. It's about fellowship and intimacy with God. Obedience to, to the truth. We are not saved by actions. And I want to make sure that we're clear on that. We are not saved by action. But it's the logical... It's logical that that faith, the logical response to faith is actions. You get what I'm saying? We're not saved by those actions, but the logical faith response to the gospel is we do things. We 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 behave differently. We conduct ourselves differently. It makes sense that if we are saved, that we were saved from something, right? What is saved? What is saved if it's not from something? So the idea is we're saved from something and we're saved for something else. So we're saved from this, but for that. In other words, so it's like, I'm saved, yay, I'm out of danger. And what now? That's it? No. Uh, now I can live. I was dead, now I'm alive. I was saved from death, now I'm, I'm, I'm alive to do things. 
Now I can really glorify God because that's what glorifies God, the living. So we are saved for something. Um, we, we must also be saved for something else. And, and that, that's the thing, that we are saved from sins. And if you look at that, that's in verses 14 and 18. And we're saved for obedience. And that's in 3 and 22. Okay? Uh, Peter makes it clear in, in, uh, in 1, 5 through 9 that salvation is by faith. And it's a faith, faith in the work of Jesus. And faith in the selection of God. You know, and trusting God. Salvation is not gained by merit. And because it is not gained by merit, it can neither be lost by merit. Obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love. John 13.34 says this. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So it makes perfect sense that the, the way Christians are supposed to be known is for the love, especially that we have towards our other fellow, fellow Christians. The devil has made much in our day and age of getting Christians to attack each other. And that's a shame. Peter is telling us we can't be like that. John wrote that as well. From a pure heart. Again, the idea is a purified heart would be a better rendering of that. This is a purification by fire. Whether, and whether the purification is by fire or by water, the idea is that a cleansing is taking place. This is a result of being born again, verse 23. Uh, to notice the continual contrast that Peter makes between temporary, eternal, perishable seed, imperishable. Things that have temporary value versus things that have eternal value. Peter is setting up the motivation for us for why we can go through suffering. That's what he's doing. By reminding us, this is temporary. You know, this is temporary. It's just a temporary setback. Don't worry. He, that's what he's telling us. Okay? He, he'll be detailing this in the chapters to come. And we're gonna, he's going to get more specific about it. Okay, but here right now, first he sets up our, our living hope. And then the fact that we're called to holiness. Okay, the immediate context is living and abiding in the word of, of God. In other words, the gospel. Also, the whole counsel of Scripture. Verses 24 and 25, that's from Isaiah 40, 68, where it talks about the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of God lasts forever. Again, everything in this life prior to God's new covenant is temporary. Uh, simply put, God's word is his bond. When John, when, from Genesis 1, 1, when God speaks, what happens? Whatever he speaks happens. That goes all the way throughout the, from Genesis to Revelation. We can trust God. And Peter's telling us that God's good for it. God is really good for it. So he gives us all the reasons why we should have hope and then why all the reasons why we need to be set apart. And as, as he put it, uh, as John wrote it, I mean, there's overlap. Let's face it, John and Peter, they, they hung out with the same master. So I'm sure that when Peter's saying this stuff, he was there in that meeting. You are in this world, but you are not of this world. We are all temporary residents. Okay? We have hope, and we're called to holiness. And in the following weeks, we're going to talk about some more specifics in different areas of life, in, in work, in society, and in the family. This has been Masterclass Theology. Thanks for listening.